and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast, the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world for the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and today I'm joining you from Berlin for a very exciting podcast on the shape of the new European Commission. Ursula von der Leyen has presented her new team to the world. There are no less than eight vice presidents, three executive vice presidents, and one of them, the first executive vice president, Franz Timmermans, will be chairing the college in her absence, the Dutch commissioner. But the other executive vice presidents are Margareta Vestager, who is the commissioner for the executive vice president for the digital age, and Valdis Dombrovskis, the Latvian commissioner, former prime minister, who is the vice president for an economy that works for the people. And uh, Franz Timmermans, who's the first executive vice president, is in charge of the, the European Green Deal. There are another five uh, vice presidents, all with very exciting titles, including uh, people in favor of um, uh, all of her top priorities which include a stronger Europe in the world for Josep Borrell, the high representative and vice president, protecting the European way of life, which is uh, the Greek commissioner, Margarita Sinas, who's a vice president. Democracy and demography is another intriguing one. Values and transparency and institutional relations and foresight. The most exciting thing maybe is that in her mission letters to all the commissioners, she explained that this isn't just going to be a political commission like Juncker's was. She said this will be a geopolitical commission and said that as well as having these three executive vice presidents, each leading groups of commissioners, the high representative or vice president will support me in coordinating the external dimension of all commissioners work in order to make sure that Europe can be autonomous on the world stage. So to help me make sense of this, I've got a star team from all over Europe. First up, we have Teresa Coratella, who is an ECFR policy fellow and uh, runs our office in Rome at the moment. Tara Varma has come back to the podcast from Paris. And from Warsaw, we have Piotr Barras, who's also a senior policy fellow at ECFR. But we're all sitting here in Berlin trying to make sense of, of what this means. Maybe we should just go through uh, the beginning and, and say what struck us about both the division of labours, what kind of jobs and portfolios she, uh, she selected. Piotr, do you want to go first? Yes, thank you. And um, one interesting uh, aspect of this new uh, setup of the European Commission is the attempt, uh, sort of a last-minute attempt, to restore a geographical balance uh, in the key positions of the Commission, because as we all know, the Central Eastern Europe or the, the, the new member states were somewhat disadvantaged after the first nominations. Uh, the, no representative of the region was in the leading positions. Now we have four vice presidents from Central Eastern Europe, Dombrovsky, Shevchovic, Jurova and uh, Dubravka, Svica. So they come from Latvia, from Slovakia... From, from Slovakia, from Croatia, uh, from Croatia, and uh, from uh, the Czech Republic, and this is um, of so no one from Poland. No, no one from Poland. No one from uh, from Hungary. So it's interesting that indeed these two countries, which are sort of troublemakers in the European Union, were delegated to the. I don't want to say second rank 
portfolios because all portfolios are somewhat important. But but the fact that, for example, the, the Hungarian representatives got the neighborhood and enlargement portfolio, it probably is a sign of a rather low uh, importance of this portfolio in the... You don't think the, that the Hungarian commission is going to be drumming hard the message for countries to meet the mm. Copenhagen criteria? Yeah, I think that, that's a paradox that he, he, will be, he will be responsible <laughs> for, for basically... Uh, representing the Copenhagen criteria in relations with the accession countries. But also, you know, I think the other way around, we, you can say that uh, giving the, this particular portfolio to, uh, to Hungarian representatives shows that enlargement policy will not enjoy a lot of interest of the, of the leadership of the, of the commission. And, and then the Polish uh, portfolio, agriculture, it's, it's far below Polish ambitions. Uh, Poland uh, wanted to get a economic portfolio, perhaps industrial policy, but um, that was granted to, uh, to Gentiloni uh, from, from Italy and other internal market is in the French uh, hands. So, so Poland uh, has to be happy with, with agriculture, which is for Poland an important policy area, but it's not something where you can make a very strong political impact uh, in the next few years, even if your ambition is to, to increase the subsidies. But do you, do you not think it could help peace um, consolidate their electoral base and, and make sure that the Farmers' Party don't carry on eating away at their to, support? To be honest, I, I think that was the principal reason for, for Poland to uh, demand this uh, portfolio, because apparently the, the Polish government was interested in this portfolio, despite the fact that the former candidate for a commissioner claimed to interested in uh, in the other areas which I mentioned uh, and indeed the main reason it was uh, for for the Polish government to show to the to the Polish electorate that the party is taking care of the of the Polish peasants and marginalizing the smaller peasants party in Poland is the key domestic policy goal of the current ruling party so you mentioned Italy there. Maybe we should jump to Teresa because Italy was a bit of a surprise here because everyone was getting ready for a Lega commissioner who was going to be trying to destroy the European Union. Instead, we get uh, Paolo Gentiloni, who's probably a much more comfortable figure for uh, for Ursula von der Leyen to have. Uh, well, yes, exactly. Uh, let me just say that while we speak at the moment, Italian politics are really changing because the Conte bis government is undergoing the vote at the Italian Senate. So in a couple of hours, we might be sure to say that we have a new government in Italy. As you said, um, in Italian politics in summer have been quite busy, I can say. In July, still in July, we had the uh, League Five Star Movement government pushing for a completely different idea and strategy for Europe. And now, in less than two months, we have a totally reverse situation uh, with Italy trying to replace itself in Europe in a different way. And the nomination of Gentiloni is the clear is a clear example of how this possible new government uh, uh, wants to play in Europe. So what do you think, because Gentiloni was Prime Minister, Foreign Minister, the leader of the Democratic Party um, in its former incarnation. What do we know of him? What do we expect from him in Brussels? He immediately said that uh, he's going to work for Europe. 
He's a deeply committed European. But what is interesting is that he also immediately and clearly remarked how he's going to work inside Europe to guarantee the respect of all the rules decided in Brussels. So uh, he has a very delicate and difficult job at the moment. The five-star movement. We're breaking all the budgetary rules. Exactly. That's the point. So do you think that's why he got this job? Because, it, it, again, you know, given the fights over the budget with Italy over the last few months, nobody really expected Italy to get an economic portfolio. Yeah, that's the very interesting point of all these political games. He knows he's completely aware he's going to deal with very delicate issues and the fact that uh, the new Italian economy minister, Gualtieri, coming from the European Parliament, has been chosen for this position uh, clearly shows how Italy is going to... It's a backstop for uh, Italian... Exactly. Budgetary yeah. policy. Was there anything else that you that you were struck by when you looked at the new commission? I have to say that I was very uh, surprised to see three words that I think were missing in the past maybe decade of European politics: economy, green deal, and digital age. All put together, I think that they give a very positive signal of what the next commission is going to work for. And uh, again, quite surprisingly, I have to say that in the new Italian government, these three wars are among the key pillars of the next governmental program. So uh, it will be interesting to see how they will manage to match this and how does the Italian commissioner, because it's interesting, somebody was joking on Twitter before that, that Gentiloni's job is to be the economy commissioner, but Dombrovskis is for an economy that works for the people, implying that Gentiloni's economy is not going to work for the people. But how do these different economic portfolios relate to each other? Because there's also a big economic portfolio for France that we're going to talk about. Um, they have the internal market. Have they removed some of the budgetary responsibilities from Gentiloni to make sure that to de-risk it? Yeah, I was having a look (laughs) at uh, at his portfolio. He is going to work more on social issues regarding the economy, like, for example, unemployment. He has been given this precise job, which... especially if we think about the country he's also representing is going to be a hard job consider the topic and how this topic is seen and tackled in Italy and what what I find really interesting is that uh, he's going to be in charge of the InvestEU program built around the digital and uh, climate change so I think we have some good news finally for Italy and uh, for uh, the kind of role Italy wants to play on the European stage. So, Taha, it would be great to get you to talk a bit about the French commissioner, Sylvie Goulard, who's no uh, stranger to Brussels institutions, but what what else? uh, Well, maybe we'll start with her. What did you think about the fact that she got the internal market job? I think that was expected. There were rumors that she would she would get an economy or economics portfolio as well because that's what she's an expert on. She's really good on financial issues. There were rumors in the past few days that she would get both the internal market and the new defense portfolio. 
in a way, she did get the defense portfolio as well as the space one, but they're under portfolio, if I may say. What do you mean by under portfolios? I mean, it's not internal market and defense. Her portfolio is internal market and within that, the defense she industrial. Also, exactly. Part. She'll have the defense industrial part and a space industrial part too. So clearly in Paris, this is perceived as a big win for Macron and for France. She's going to be working on the issues she's an expert on, and she was also briefly defense minister. So Sylvie Poulard, do you want to say a bit about what her background is? Because I mean, she's an ECFR council member, but she, as well as that, has done some interesting things before. She's one of the early Macron supporters. Um. Until she gets formally nominated, uh, she's a vice governor of the Bank of France. She was a member of the European Parliament for many years, affiliated with the centrist party Modem. She's perceived in France as pro-German. She speaks German perfectly and knows German politics and economy very well. And I think she's a, a good bridge, actually, of how the Franco-German engine can work. And she got on very well with because she was von der Leyen's opposite number in a few months that she was defence minister. So they exactly. met quite a few times. And they know each other quite well. And she is also very much perceived as a pro-European. And that's, in a way, it makes sense for someone who's a European commissioner, but... I think uh, compared with previous French commissioners, she's she's really seen as Macron's representative too and Europe's representative for France. But I think generally on the commission, it, if we just go back a few weeks, uh, we need to remember that the debate on the EU elections was framed quite dramatically. Uh, either we would end up with chaos and populists in power or there would be hopefully pro-European sentiment. And I think... Ursula von der Leyen has managed actually to to work a fine balance on the, these two extremes. She's gotten a vice president who's going to be working on the European Green Deal. And I think that speaks to the concerns of many European citizens who want Europe to be more active on climate change. She has a vice president who's going to be working on an economy that works for the people. So we still have to know what that means, but I guess whose portfolio will have to take into account people's concern more and also people's uh, willingness for Europe to deliver on the economic prosperity promise. There is a question about uh, what exactly is Margarita Chines's portfolio. What does protecting our European way of life mean? Is it a reference to what populists and ultra-nationalists have been saying during the campaign? Does uh, protecting our European way of life mean excluding ourselves from the rest of the world? Does it mean that Europe is retreating? Or does it mean that we want also to promote a way of life to other people? We don't know yet. Seems like a particular act of genius, actually, because in her manifesto, which she published when she got the job, she defined the European way of life as having a few different pillars. But the first pillar was upholding the rule of law, which will go down very well with the populists in, uh, in Poland and Hungary who talk the most about the European way of life. But then she couples that with strong borders and a fresh start on migration. But again, I'm not sure if she means exactly what they mean when she talks about a fresh start on migration, because she talks about a new pact on migration and asylum and relaunch of the Dublin reform on asylum rules, talking about burden sharing. So it's quite clever in a way, taking the, the label of the, the kind of populists, but calling it, uh, but filling it with different content. It is clever, but it, <laughs> it, is, it is at the same time, it, it shows a problem with the division of labor within the commission because protecting our European way of life as described in, in the, her manifesto from July 
covers these two different areas. But if you look at the composition of the commission, so it's it's not Margarita Shinas who is responsible for rule of law, but it's rather Vera Jourova and Zidia Reinders, the Commissioner for Justice. They're basically area of responsibility. Shinas is probably responsible for migration. But, you know, protecting our way of life by creating more borders, it's not exactly, I think, what what this commission wants to stand for. But don't you think that the Commissioner for Neighborhood and Enlargement will also be probably in charge of migration? This is where I want to go back to what you were saying, thinking that the Hungarian commissioner didn't get, he got a third or a fourth seat commission. To be honest, seeing from Paris, giving this portfolio to this very critical and sensitive politically issue to a commissioner from a country who's had a very hard line on this issue sends sends a particular message. I, I wouldn't perceive it as giving him, you know, a third seat. Actually, I think it sends a message that might be a bit contradictory with the idea of refounding completely uh, the migration and asylum policies in the EU. So we need to see how... Yeah, that, that's, that's interesting. But although I, I'm, I'm not sure if, the, if this is really the idea behind uh, behind this division of labor between Trocheni and, and, and Chinas, but we will see. And what do you think, what do you expect of, of Jourova? Because in the last commission, Franz Timmermans was really crusading on these rule of law issues. A lot of people were quite surprised at the tough stance that he took against, you know, the government in, in the country mm. you know best, as well as in, in Hungary. Do you think that von der Leyen's going to carry on this kind of... Um, I mean, she mentions the rule of law as one of her top priorities. Um, she puts it in the, in the way of life. It's obviously something people here in Berlin, where we're sitting, people feel very strongly about. I went to the... I was invited to speak at the German Ambassadors Conference a couple of weeks ago, and it was one of the central features of what Heiko Maas was speaking about in his big speech. But at the same time, Timmermans is a particular type of person. Is, is Jerova going to have that kind of stance? And, and von der Leyen herself is, is a bit less uh, known for her kind of aggressive stances. Yeah, but I think she was uh, she has been quite uh, quite clear about her priorities in this in this field and also if you look at the letter of mission for Reinders for, for the uh, commission of justice who will be responsible for for this area uh, it is very clear that basically the, the protection of rule of law will be his absolute priority, or should be his absolute priority. Because the, the main way one does that is through the budget, and they put Johannes Hahn, who's quite uh, sympathetic probably to Central and Eastern Europe in charge of the budget. Yes, they're probably less interested in this in this, this aspect. But I think it, at the end of the day, it will be the decision of the EU member states if they want to uh, include this rule of law mechanism into the new, new multi-annual financial framework. And it, I, I'm sure it will happen. And then Eurova and Reinders will be tasked with, with uh, basically carrying out the, the provisions of this, of this mechanism. And I think... Belgium, it, it, it's also important. Einders himself been very active on, on this front in the in the previous months and years, uh, promoting this idea of peer review on rule of law, which was also part of the new rule of law framework in the EU. So I think, despite the fact that the, the Polish populists or conservatives in, in also in, in Hungary probably are happy not having Timmermans in this leading role on, on rule of law, I don't think this commission will be much softer uh, on that issue. 
Maybe as a transition to what Piotr just said, we've discussed the geographical balance quite a lot, but there is a political shift as well in this new commission that reflects, I guess, to some extent the changes uh, and the results in, in the European elections uh, from May. The EPP, who had half of the seats of the commissioners before, only has a third of them now. The Social Democrats uh, have increased by two. The Liberals stay stable, more or less. There is one representative of the Greens. So there is a, a, a Lithuanian a, commissioner. I can read your notes. <laughs> <laughs> I can read my notes. So... We need to see how that will have an impact, and I think on the rule of law aspect too, and on the values and transparency aspect, we need to see whether that changes or not, whether the push comes from the commissioners or whether it comes also from the national basis. And in terms of the populist commissioners, apart from the Hungarian one, how many of the college uh, come from anti-European parties? Anti-European is, of course, it, it, perhaps it is a strong word, but it's... Uh, sovereignist parties. Sovereignist parties, it, I think... I think just two, in Trocheny and, and Wojciechowski. And they were European Commission compatible. They were not the most hardliners. I mean, Trocheny is responsible for the lawyer and, and uh, was Minister of Justice, so he's, he's actually quite deeply involved in the Orban system. Uh, Wojciechowski less so. He used to be a member of the peasant, Polish Peasants Party and is not known for, for very you know harsh positions on so we've got about five minutes left and I sort of feel the weight of history on my shoulders because this is a big kind of geopolitical moment. So we should talk about Josep Borrell, who is the vice president for a stronger Europe in the world. If you read his mission letter from Ursula von der Leyen, she says, we must also be aware that our internal and external work are two sides of the same coin. What we do at home will affect our place in the world and will shape relations with our strategic partners and competitors. This is why we must be a geopolitical commission. And then she sets him a bunch of goals to be strategic and assertive, to work on making sure that he enhances Europe's capacity to act autonomously. She talks about overcoming the unanimity constraints that hamper foreign policy, better linking internal and external aspects by uh, chairing the external part of, of all the commissioner's work. And then she talks about European Defence Union and also playing to use the external financial instruments. Yeah, we, we talked about it a few times, but it's fair to say that Federica Mogherini has not overseen uh, a kind of big enhancement of Europe's role on the world stage and the authority of Brussels over the global system. There are all sorts of reasons for that, some of which are to do with her unwillingness to take on difficult issues. But there are a lot of structural constraints, particularly divisions between North, South, East and West, which made it very difficult for her to get forward. How, what do we think about Burrell's chances to, to overcome some of those weaknesses and to, to get back in the game? This is the, I think the right time and one of the last chances to really re-put together Europe, to work together. And, uh, and Borrelia, he has a, a very hard task on this, especially if we think of what is going on outside Europe and how everything is changing so quickly and all the global challenges we need to face. Uh, all the relations with our key partners on the global stage are changing as well. So yes, definitely, I mean, uh, it's going to be uh, a very 
peculiar moment for Europe, especially if, I mean, Europe wants to regain the citizens' trust and people's trust, as mentioned uh, several times in the new President of Commission program. So, I mean, this is a key moment for our continent and a lot of work needs to be done. So it'd be great to hear also from from the from you two because I think if you think about Mogherini, she was basically shut out of all of the big crises which Europe was facing because she partly because she lost the, the faith of, of Paris and then also of Eastern Europeans. So the Eastern Europeans didn't want her to go anywhere near Russia, and Paris definitely didn't want her to get involved in Libya in Syria. Those are the kind of biggest conflicts on the European stage. And even on Iran, where Ashton and Solana had played quite an important role, there was no role for Mogherini. Some of that is about her passivity, but I think a lot of it is the, her failure to win the trust of, of capitals. If you were giving advice to Josette Borrell about how to persuade France that he should be given a bigger role and that Macron shouldn't just be Europe's foreign minister all on his own, what would you tell him to do? I think it's about building coalition. Clearly, Hira uh, is at the most difficult and the most interesting times. The, the divide between the US and China puts Europe in, a, in an extremely complicated situation. We keep repeating it, but actually I think for him, uh, it's going to be a predicament that's going to be hard to solve. The only way to do it is to build coalitions of countries who want to work together on issues probably go to countries who are unusual suspects. France will want to push initiatives, and I don't think you can stop Macron from doing that, but you can convince him to do it initially with European partners, to listen to partner to European partners' propositions and advice. And if he wants to lead, I don't think, I mean, I think it, it's, it's not credible that, that you'll manage to prevent him from doing that. But he needs to do it with European partners. And I think he's shown that he can do it when Xi Jinping came uh, to Paris in March. He surprised him with uh, a visit by Merkel and Jean-Claude Juncker. I think this is typically the sort of initiative and exercises that can be reproduced with Borrell and with, by putting Borrell on the front stage, actually. Okay. What about Russia? Because that's one of the most difficult portfolios, which has been completely close to the EAS. How would you get back in if you were advising Borrell? It will be difficult because Russia will be, in his term, will become certainly again a very divisive issue in in, in Europe. Uh, the the unity on Russia will probably crumble, and and Borrell will have a very uphill struggle. But I, I agree that 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 he has basically two tasks. First, the first one is to build coalitions, as Tara said, uh, on issues where where it is necessary. Uh, of two, three, five countries really interested uh, and able to act. And also to to look for a consensus where consensus is, is absolutely inevitable to, to to move forward. And he will fail if he will come up with his own completely independent agenda, not consulted and not or initiatives not agreed upon among EU member states. And I think his role will be similar to the, to that of Donald Tusk as the head of the European Council, but limited to the foreign policy area. So it's kind of broker and, and consensus builder. Well, the slogan for the whole commission is hashtag EU strives for more. So let's hope that they manage to achieve more. We've run out of time for this uh, discussion, but we have one 
last task before we end the podcast, and that is our bookshelf segment. So, Piotr, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Uh, there are several books about Eastern Germany because Eastern Germany has become uh, politically an ex- extremely interesting part of Europe and, and Germany. So I'm reading Jana Hensel's and Wolfgang Engler's book, Wer uh, sind wir? Who, who, who are we? So there's sort of an identity analysis of Eastern Germans and a couple of others. What about you, Tara? I'm reading L'Art de Perdre by Elie Zeniter. Uh, it's a novel on France and Algeria, a family wow. saga spanning over 40 years. And I should say that today actually is released The Testaments by Margaret Atwood, which is the prequel, sequel to uh, The Handmaid's Tale. And you should definitely try it out. What about you, Teresa? I'm actually reading the, a book by Liliana Segre. She's a senator in the current Italian parliament. She's a survivor of the Holocaust. And today she made a, an amazing speech during Conte's, uh, Prime Minister Conte's speech, saying that this is really time for Italy and for Europe to reverse what uh, was the trend so far. And I think this is really inspiring and I do really recommend it. Okay, and I've been reading something somewhat more um, pedestrian, but uh, it's a really good book actually called The Virtual Weapon by Lucas Kello, and it explores how cyber is not just a new weapon, but is in fact changing a lot of our basic assumptions about how international relations work. But we'll also put links up to the mission letter for Josette Borrell and the vision for um, the European Commission, which is called a union that strives for more my agenda for Europe because these should be required reading for all European citizens as well as obviously the erudite listeners to the world in 30 minutes. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please give us a fantastic review and a rating on whatever platform you're using to listen to us on. Tell your friends and family about us on, on social media. You can get links to all the things we mentioned on our website, which is www.ecfr.org. EU slash podcast. The researcher of ECFR podcast is Jonathan Hackenbreich. Our producer is Marlena Riedel. But for now, from Piotr Baras, Teresa Coratella, Tara Barma, and myself, Marlena, it's goodbye. <laughs>